rabbit, rabbit, everybody. Welcome to another episode of You Don't Have to Yell. I'm your host, Dan Sally, and I'm recording straight from Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. It's a new month, and in addition to hosting Thanksgiving, this month of November also has Veterans Day, and we're going to spend the month diving into the U.S. military. Now, We take for granted the fact that America has one of the largest, most technologically advanced militaries in the world, and yet we rarely pay attention to the price. Now, at over 50% of federal discretionary spending, the U.S. military budget exceeds that of the next seven largest military budgets in the world combined. And I think it's worth asking the question, how well is this money being spent? So... To kick off this month, I invited Dr. Lindsey Kahn from the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island to join me. Uh, Dr. Kahn specializes in civil military relations and the personnel side of the U.S. military and was gracious enough to share her expertise with me on the subject, as well as answer a bunch of annoying questions I had that tangentially related to her work. So thank you, Dr. Kahn. I'm not going to spoil the content of the conversation But I'll lead it off with an African proverb that reads, where there is no enemy within, the enemy outside can do you no harm. I want you all to shelve any deep state conspiracy theories or preconceptions about the current administration you might infer from that. I'll be back at the end with closing comments. Uh, You know, I guess just to kick things off, can you tell everyone listening about yourself and, and your field of expertise? Sure. So my name is Lindsay Kahn. I am a PhD political scientist. I'm currently uh, an associate professor at the U.S. Naval War College, um, uh, which reminds me, I should point out that I am here in my personal capacity as an academic who studies these things, and nothing I say represents the views of the Naval War College or any other organ of the U.S. government. My field is what's called civil-military relations, uh, and that focuses on the relationships within a society between um, the, the government, the wider society, and the small group of people that that society has designated to do the fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that field uh, is both normative and descriptive. You know, we like to know what is happening and how things actually work, but we're also very concerned with the health of those relationships and how they ought to look. So um, I spend a lot of time working on personnel issues, specifically recruiting and retention, but also sort of human resources management. Um, and, and this is something that I think we should all, as, as informed uh, and engaged citizens, care about. It's interesting because obviously when... Most lay people, and I will include myself a member of that group, think about the military and think about military strength. We're, we're often thinking in terms of hardware and, and firepower and don't think a ton about the people involved. And, and I want I wanted to circle back to that. But before we dive into that part, you know, one question I have for you is, what do you feel are, are kind of the big challenges the military is going to be facing in this century? Yeah, so if, so if you're asking me to make sort of educated guesses about what types of missions the military would be engaged, you know, what will warfare look like, what mm-hmm. types of things will the military be doing, as someone who has spent a fair amount of time thinking through this, my guess would be that 
large-scale conventional great power war is fairly unlikely, not impossible, but fairly unlikely because it is so destructive and so expensive and uh, so useless for most of the types of things that people are likely to be fighting about in the future that I just, I don't think that's going to be the big one that we see a lot. Mm -hmm. I also assume that the U.S. will continue to prefer capital and technology intensive approaches to conflict uh, as opposed to manpower intensive ones. So what that means basically is we'd rather send one F-35 than send 200 men on the ground, Mm -hmm. right? And I also think that a lot of conflict is going to take place sort of below the level of high-intensity kinetic engagement, manifesting a lot as contests for influence, narrative dominance. That doesn't mean there won't be any killing or exploding things, um, but I, I don't expect it to be big battlefields a lot of the time. And so one of the things that this implies is that the military organization will continue to need people who fight, right? Infantry, artillery, pilots, etc. But will either need those people to be competent in technologies and systems that they'll be using, which will probably get more and more complex because Americans like complex technology, mm-hmm. or, or they'll need people accompanying them who are skilled in those technologies. Uh, deterrence is going to be big. And there are two strategies of deterrence, well, you know, two main strategies of deterrence. Uh, Deterrence by punishment and deterrence by denial. Deterrence by punishment basically means you threaten that uh, if you do this, I will hurt you so badly that it won't have been worth it to you, right? That's sort of nuclear deterrence, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to attack me because I will shoot a nuclear missile at you and you will all die. Yeah. And that doesn't, seem, that doesn't seem worth it, so you don't do it. That's deterrence uh, by punishment. Deterrence by denial is one that we talk about a lot less, but I think it's going to become significantly more important in the future. And deterrence by denial is basically making the, the thing that the other person wants to do so difficult that he or she simply chooses not to do it anymore because it, it would just be too difficult to do. Mm-hmm. And the, the simple examples of this are things like hardening targets, right? You know, if you don't want someone to bring uh, weapons into an airport, you just put a bunch of people checking and metal detectors and stuff, you harden the target. Mm-hmm. But a lot of ways to do this involve things like resiliency and systems redundancy, right? If you make a society so good at bouncing back from an attack that the attack doesn't have the intended effect, mm-hmm. that's deterrence by denial. Okay. So I think that the U.S. military is probably going to be getting into areas that require a lot of fairly highly skilled, maybe even professionally skilled people, and maybe at least proportionally less of what we relied on in the sort of 20th century model, which was a large number of, I'm going to say low skill, that's a technical term. It doesn't mean that they're incompetent or not capable. It means that they just come in having general skills and the military trains them in specific skills, but those skills are really useful only to the military. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to start needing more people with different sets of skills. And that means either significantly more intensive, expensive training, or it means getting different people. So just to paraphrase what you're saying it sounds like the the old model of warfare was go out and break things and the new model is going to be more make it very difficult to break effectively is that 
I mean, that's Fair. one of the things that, yeah, that's one of the things I'm expecting. So based on the scenario you described, how are we doing so far at finding and recruiting these people? Well, so the good news is that the U.S. is very good at recruiting what I would call high-quality people into the military. And by high-quality, I mean they score well on aptitude tests, I mean, they're, they're all, uh, in general, more highly educated than, than the average is for the U.S. population. So we are not, and I want to emphasize this, we are not scraping the bottom of the barrel. We get a very high-quality group of people in there. Mm-hmm. My concern is that the kinds of things that we're going to need for the future, so one of the things that I expect <clears throat> future operations to be characterized by is greater speed. And that doesn't mean that I think they'll be over quickly. You know, I'm not, I'm not a the war will be done by Christmas kind of person. I, 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 <laughs> in fact, I think that'll, <laughs> that's definitely not happening. But I think the speed at which the things that happen will happen is going to increase. And what that means is you need people who are flexible, adaptive thinkers, people who can uh, react quickly, people who do not, and, and people who can be very creative with their responses. And one of the things that we know from a lot of organizational studies is that the best way to get that kind of workforce is to have a workforce in which people's assumptions are constantly challenged. Another way of saying that is to have a very diverse workforce. Mm -hmm. One of the problems that we have right now that was a strength in the past was significant homogeneity. And it was both a strength and a sort of convenience, right? There was a large pool of young, uh, white, male, middle-class people who were available to be drawn into the military pool. The U.S. demographics are changing. As a sort of normative point, I think the military ought to reflect the demographics of the population. Mm -hmm. But as a point of, of sort of pure practicality, If you have an organization full of people who are from similar backgrounds with similar upbringings and similar assumptions about life, similar experiences in life, they are not likely to develop the kinds of adaptivity and flexibility and creativity that I think the future force is really going to need. Mm -hmm. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like we're not necessarily getting an A plus in recruiting for diversity. Is that fair? We're doing fairly well right now. In fact, I, I would point out the the current U.S. all volunteer force is the most representative force the U.S. has ever had. So I would not give us an A plus, but I wouldn't give us anything lower than a B. Oh, um, okay. Probably, probably, probably a B plus actually. Mm-hmm. The, the issue is the trends. We are still getting by right now with an old recruiting model that um, I would say prioritizes efficiency, which is obviously not a bad thing, uh, but prioritizing efficiency means you get the easiest recruits. You don't work hard to bring in a bunch of different people who you know, maybe it takes a little more time and effort and money to attract them. I think what we're going to need to do is start being less efficient about recruiting and and working specifically to get uh, a broader pool in. Um, And and I think we're okay right now. I don't see us in a crisis, but I think if we don't reform 
the way that we do recruiting, for example, but also the, the organizational culture within the military needs to be reformed. I mean, a lot of people don't join simply because it doesn't occur to them that the military is a place that someone like them could belong. Mm-hmm. And, and that is something that we need to work on because we need people to believe that that is someplace that they could belong, that they could be a part of that mission. Otherwise, they won't be interested. Are, are there specific types of people you can cite that maybe aren't signing up as readily that, that are needed? Sure. Well, <clears throat> I mean, Jacqueline Schneider has, has written a, a wonderful short piece about getting people with blue hair to join. Okay. <laughs> you know, so nonconformist uh, is one. But especially, I think, uh, so one of my big things that, that I have talked about a fair amount is that I think we should increase the pathways for immigrants to join, both immigrants who are seeking citizenship and immigrants who already have citizenship. The U.S. military has a long, not always proud, but a long tradition of having immigrants serve and having that be a pathway to citizenship. And I think it's an enormous strength uh, for the U.S. forces to have those people with such different experiences and backgrounds who can come in and say, I realize that this is how you think about things, but that's not how everybody thinks about things. Let me tell you about how, how you know, my family or my, you know, where I came from think about things. So that's one. Another is, uh, so this is going to, this is going to touch on the religious diversity. Mm-hmm. That's one of the places where I would give us a not so great grade. And again, it just has a lot to do with the way that people think and the assumptions they make. You know, there's nothing wrong with the people that we currently have in the military. They do a fabulous job, but they, they have uh, a fairly similar background in terms of belief systems. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. that limits them in how creative they can be. So do you, and, and I'm not going to hold you to this, but do you, do you have a feel for maybe why certain groups don't want to join the military or certain groups don't see themselves in there? Is it the, is it the culture or the perception of a culture of conformity? What is it exactly? I mean, I have some data on correlation um, and I have some theories. Mm -hmm. The, The data on correlation, and of course, as everyone knows, correlation does not equal causation. So we don't know exactly why this is. Mm-hmm. Um, although I'm sure everyone could come up with, with some possible explanations. Mm-hmm. We know that people who are more conservative tend to be more interested in joining the military than people who are less conservative. Mm-hmm. And there are some beliefs that go with that, a belief in authority, for one thing. So one survey question that comes up a lot is, I think the United States is the best country in the world, a sort of patriotism thing. Mm-hmm. People who score highly on that kind of question are likely to want to join the military. And this gives me some ideas about why some other people maybe have not been thinking about joining. Um, and that is maybe some people don't feel like the U.S. accepts them. Some people maybe don't feel like they are considered a part of the community. And if you don't feel like you belong in a community, you may not be super interested in serving it. You maybe maybe want to do your service somewhere else. So that's a theory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things, too, you had mentioned 
as we were trading emails was you mentioned political polarization and instability in the US was you know yeah. part of one of those big personnel challenges does that kind of play in there that that the dialogue has maybe gotten so heated that people are likely to self-select themselves out of the military based on either their political leaning or their ethnic or religious background? There is a little bit of evidence that people who are more liberal are more likely to leave the military than people who are more conservative. That's not my research. I'm not particularly good with the details on that one. Mm -hmm. My pure speculation is that Yeah, again, I mean, if you think about it, joining the military is literally taking an oath to do whatever people tell you lawfully, Mm -hmm. to do whatever they tell you because you believe in your country. You believe Mm -hmm. that your country is legitimate and that it will do the right things and you are willing to serve it. Mm -hmm. And if you are in a place where the politics of your country are such that you're not entirely sure that your country will do the right thing, you're less likely to make that commitment. Mm-hmm. So, so when you have polarization, I think what you're likely to get is the type of person who identifies with the party in power is more likely to join and the person who identifies with the party not in power is less likely to join. Again, that is speculation. I do not have evidence of that. But I think that if polarization continues, regardless of which party is in power at any given time, what you're going to have is more difficulty recruiting people because people are starting to see the government less as uh, the government of, of the United States, even though it's not my favorite party, and more as, oh, that's their government and not my government. Yeah, and this, this kind of gets back to something you were talking about earlier with you know, the whole idea of deterrence by denial, because yeah. one of the things I've read a bit about is the fact that a lot of the challenges that we're going to see from a national security standpoint are going to be cyber and are going to be related to our, to systems infrastructure. And, you know, one of the, I guess, weaknesses of America being such a technologically advanced society is that our systems are very vulnerable to cyber attack much more than let's say Russia or North Korea, for example. And what I also know about the tech space in general is that you have a high degree of nonconformity, a general lack of deference to authority. And in many cases, the people you're going to need to recruit to provide that deterrence by denial are going to fall sort of into that bucket. So do you have an idea? Is there a way to make space for these people? Is there space for these people now or... I mean, I think the military is working on it. The military is aware of these problems. I'm not making any great revelations here. The military knows that they have these problems and they have been working on them, but cultural change is very hard. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, they they know that they need these people um, and they know that the tech sector is a sort of different culture from their own. I don't think that they've solved the problem. I don't think they've figured out how to how to attract those people. And that's one of the reasons that I say, I really think the military needs to confront its own organizational culture in a really big way. Mm -hmm. I I think they've been tinkering around the edges um, and they're going to have to think bigger. Mm -hmm. But you know, what you're talking about is some people would say, Oh, look, yeah, that's, that's 
the redundancy part, right? If you have a lot of diversity in systems, but it's not. We don't have redundancy. What we have is fractionalization. And you're right, that makes it that makes us rather vulnerable because we don't have a concerted way to respond when there's a problem. I mean, we do have some things in place. You know, we're not completely helpless. We've actually handled these things very well. But if we don't figure out how to coordinate those two worlds, we, we will remain vulnerable. Mm-hmm. One of the things that kind of popped into my head as you were talking about r- resiliency is, is the whole concept of, of just infrastructure in general. Do you feel that, that updates or investments in infrastructure, so those would be you know, roads, railroad, electrical grid, all that, is that as much a part of national security as the military itself, do you feel, or, or no? I mean, I personally would say yes, precisely because You know, if I'm an opponent out there seeking a weakness to exploit, seeking a way to turn Americans against one another or something like that, Mm -hmm. um, there are lots of things that I could exploit, you know, that most people would not think of as as traditional military targets. And I'm going to exploit them. So, yes, if I want my secure, if I want my society to be more secure, the military is a huge important part of that, but there are other things that also need to be done. We need workable infrastructure that can, that can bounce back from attacks or even just from natural disasters. We're going to have more of those uh, mm-hmm. as well. And those are the kinds of things that, that any opponent can exploit and that if we want to be more secure, we, we should invest in making the society work as well as possible. Mm-hmm. And. Obviously, your focus is is personnel. Your focus is civil, military relations as well. And uh, and we are a nation that has civilian control over the military in the sense that Congress authorizes spending, presidents, commander in chief, on and on. One of the things I, I I had I had mentioned I wanted to ask you about was the politicization of U.S. military decisions, specifically as it pertains mm. to the budget, uh, because in what I've read, uh, a lot we we make some very large investments in things the military doesn't want. So a great example is, or two examples would be the M1 Abrams tank, which. Of course, we have enough to go around, to, to put it lightly, and, uh, and the F-35 as well, which are, are two projects that the military's effectively said, you know, we're okay without it, but Congress still authorizes spending. To what extent is that a problem? And, and, and to what extent is maybe that hamstringing the military from investing in areas that it should be investing in? Well... I mean, the first thing I would say is that just because the military wants or doesn't want something doesn't mean that that's the final word on the matter, right? The the executive branch makes the policy. Congress decides what to spend taxpayers' money on. Mm -hmm. And the military is a part of that conversation. They don't get to dictate what they end up with, either in terms of policy or in terms of hardware. Now, that being said, you know, I think that a lot of the problem that I see is embedded in the incentive structure for members of Congress, right? So mm-hmm. one of the things that you had asked me about was the influence of, of the defense industry. And of course, they have enormous influence. And 
uh, lobbying is, is built into our system. If you wanted a system where lobbyists didn't have any influence or had less influence, you'd need to reform the entire system. Mm-hmm. It's not like we can just make a law that says, oh, you can't do that anymore and it would stop. The problem that I see is that members of Congress have a number of uh, incentives that they are trying to respond to. And some of those incentives lead them to make spending decisions that maybe are suboptimal from mm-hmm. the perspective of national security. And some of, sometimes they'll make uh, decisions that the military doesn't want. And that then creates friction especially if no one can explain to the military what they're supposed to do with it. You know, if you insist on, on acquiring a platform and you tell the military, we're going to get you this, this aircraft and it's so fabulous that you can do 20 different missions with it, but we're only going to buy 16 of them, you know, that, that doesn't work out with the way that the military is structured. It doesn't work out with, with the way that they've got organization or doctrine or anything like that ready to go. So, you know, Congress needs to be aware of that. But I think in general, you know, I worked briefly in the Pentagon. Uh, I was there for for less than a year, but I came away with the impression that, you know, the system has all kinds of problems, the political system, the, the policy system has all kinds of problems, but it's actually not a terrible system. It's just of human beings who mm-hmm. make mistakes and uh, sometimes have the wrong motive and sometimes game the system. I'm just going to keep beating my drum, but if you want healthy policymaking, if you want healthy civil-military dialogue, then you have to have a healthy political system. Mm-hmm. Yes, which does not seem to be a priority <laughs> nowadays. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> you've really, you know, I'll, I'll pause here for a second and say, you know, mm-hmm. obviously you've, you've dedicated your, your career to understanding civil military relations and, and understanding the personnel structure of the U.S. military. And you were, you were just doing a wonderful job indulging all my questions that have absolutely nothing to do with your expertise. So I really, oh, that's fine. I, I, I really <laughs> appreciate that. And, and I'm, I'm probably going to keep pelting you with a few, with a few more questions that aren't a hundred percent related, but it's Be just, my guess. all right, well, let's, let's roll then. So I, I'm just going to maybe recap a lot of what we've discussed, which you know, it mm-hmm. sounds to me like from, from what you're saying, there is a, a a gap, maybe not a huge gap, but a gap between the personnel needs of the military to address the issues of the 21st century and the types of people who are signing up to join the military or the types of people they can recruit. And a good chunk of that gap is due in part to the general breakdown and dialogue in this country politically and the general suspicion that people have of the government and by that the military when their party isn't in power or that's my speculation that's speculation okay okay that's a tough thing to fix that's a really tough (laughs) thing to fix one of the things that kind of jumped out at me as, as I was thinking and looking at about the procurement side of things is obviously we, we do have situations where there's 
a surplus of military hardware. Maybe there's military hardware that the military doesn't exactly know what to do with. So again, we'll use the Abrams tank as an example. And we also sell a lot of arms as well. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you feel that maybe that has a negative effect on global stability in a way that might come back to bite, bite us? Or is there a strategic objective being served by, uh, by the way we sell arms? The U.S. has a tendency to be a little schizophrenic about economics and policy. And what I mean by that is that at least since Reagan, the U.S. has almost had a policy of separating economic activity from foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, uh, that's not an absolute thing. Obviously, we make trade deals and, and we, we care about those kinds of things. But frequently, our decisions about whether to sell things to people have much more of an economic logic to them than a strategic or a policy logic to them. Not, it's not absent, but it's usually overruled. Uh, and so, especially in terms of arms transfers, we have laws about to whom we can and cannot sell things, but those laws are not as restrictive as are the laws of many other countries that also export arms, but are much more... I would say, choosy about um, mm-hmm. to whom they export them. So uh, do I think it creates instability? In, in many cases, yes. Is it mm-hmm. also a force that could create more stability in some cases? Yes. I'm just not sure that we um, have a, a grand strategic plan to create stability by arms transfer. Yeah. I mean, because it, it, just thinking aloud, you know, it, it seems to me that if let's say we do an arms transfer to nation A and Mm -hmm. nation B really doesn't like nation A. So maybe nation B is more inclined now to go seeking military assistance from maybe adversaries for lack of a better phrasing. So maybe Russia, maybe China, what have you. And so now you have Mm -hmm. a situation where there's, there is now an armed conflict where one didn't exist. And again, this is a hundred percent speculation. I don't know if you have any comments on my train of thought here or not, but I mean, we absolutely, the U.S. government absolutely considers those issues when they think about doing arms sales or arms transfers Mm -hmm. of of other kinds. Whether they are very good at thinking through those possibilities is a different issue. And my my critique is not that we don't think about those things, because we absolutely do. We have uh, an executive branch full of civil servants who who are experts at their jobs and and who work very hard to obey the laws uh, that Congress has set down about where we can and cannot sell armaments. And we have, you know, congressional staff members who who check up on these things. It's not that we're not thinking about them. It's that we don't have a grand unified plan that guides those policies. They just tend, they tend to be fairly ad hoc um, and so that's the big criticism that I would have about mm-hmm. that. And and the other criticism that I would have, and this is just a pet peeve of mine, is that the U.S. government has a has a tendency to believe that other states will act out of gratitude, and states don't do that. Mm-hmm. States don't act out of gratitude. You know, if you arm someone, they will not be so grateful to you that they'll do whatever you ask them to do in the future. They yeah. will say, "Thanks so much for the armaments." go away and leave me alone. 
And the, the U.S. government, I think, in some ways has a little bit of naivete about that. We'll, we'll sell arms to someone or give arms to someone and then they'll do something that's in their own interest and not in ours. And we'll be all surprised that they did that. And we're like, how could they do that? You know, we gave them all these weapons and now they're not doing what we want, what we want them to do. <laughs> we gave them all these weapons and now they're fighting. Go figure. Yeah. You know, one, one question I'd ask is, you know, what extent is our, is our foreign military policy guided by the defense industry and guided by those, those lobbying efforts? Yeah. So the defense industry certainly has influence with the executive branch, but most of the defense, so most policy is going to be made by the executive branch, not the legislative branch. The legislative branch can produce policy initiatives, but they're usually more in a reactive mode responding Mm -hmm. to what the executive uh, proposes. And lobbying efforts are mostly aimed um, at the legislative branch, not not exclusively. But what I think has been interesting, since you ask about civil military balance, that over the last few years, uh, what has been happening within the Department of Defense is a shift in the locus of sort of policy making, strategic planning, etc., from the civilian side in the office of the Secretary of Defense, OSD, to the joint staff, the uniformed military side. And this is happening for many, many reasons. I think the top three reasons are, number one, you have the sort of personnel deficiencies that we've seen with this particular administration in terms of just not nominating people, um, there being a lot of seats that are just empty in OSD during this administration. And that, of course, just means that there are fewer people to do the policy making. Whereas the joint staff is, of course, fully staffed because that's uniformed people who rotate through. And so they have been, uh, just in a practical sense, able to take on more of that work. But there's also been a direction there. So uh, when Jim Mattis was Secretary of Defense and Joe Dunford uh, was the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, not only did the two of them have a, a long-standing relationship and they understood each other very well, but they both agreed on some policy issues. And so the, the other two reasons, aside from the personnel deficit, are one, Secretary Mattis, I don't think, uh, and, and I say this based on his own statements, I don't think he ever really stopped being a Marine General, um, even when he was appointed as a civilian Secretary of Defense. And I think he was always much more comfortable working with the uniformed side um, and having them do a lot of the things that he was less comfortable with the civilian political and civil service side doing those things. Um, and I'm not saying he didn't trust them. He did. But I think he just went with what he was used to. So again, that was sort of a shift in the locus of planning and, and strategic thinking and, and policymaking from the civilian side to the uniformed joint staff. And then finally, Joe Dunford had uh, believed for quite some time and worked for some time on trying to create something like a general staff system in the United States, particularly in terms of moving power away from the geographic combatant commanders and to a staff in Washington, D.C. And so one of the things that you ended up with here was a sort of perfect storm of a lack of capacity on the civilian side, plus a secretary who was interested in this whole thing. You know, he, he and Dunford kind of agreed. And by the way, I, there are a lot of good things about a general staff system. The, I'm not saying this to imply that, that he's wrong or that this is a bad idea. 
but uh, you know you have two very highly respected uh, marine officers, one retired, trying to trying to focus planning and strategic thinking and policy making within the joint staff. And I think it's been fairly effective. You know, I talk to people in DOD now and in the sort of national security world, and this is one of the things they're most worried about is the fact that the civilian side of policy planning and strategic planning um, has been significantly weakened uh, in the DOD. And I, Secretary Esper hasn't been there for very long, and I don't know much about him, but the, the capacity problem hasn't been fixed. And General Dunford has retired now, of course, but I'm not sure how, how General Milley sees this particular issue. But I don't see that that one being fixed anytime soon. And that, that is a concern because really it's, it's the appointed civilians who can sort of implement the president's vision and the expert civil servants who have been working on these issues for their entire careers who, who should be doing the bulk of the planning and, and strategic thinking there. So that is a concern. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, as much as I, I maybe groused earlier about the fact that we have civilian control of the military and the way I kind of, kind of called out Congress on their approval of projects that the military didn't want. It sounds like that balance breaking down or there's a, there's a real risk of, of that balance breaking down as we kind of understaff the federal government in terms of, of positions that affect national security. Am I hearing you right there? Yeah. And again, I'm not saying that this is the end of the world. These kinds of things fluctuate all the time. And, and of course, we have lots of very capable people on both the uniform and the civilian sides. It's, not, it's yeah. not that planning will be bad if it's done by the joint staff. The problem is really a normative one in that strategic planning and policymaking are supposed to be done by the representatives of the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that is, is I think coming under stress right now. Going back to something you mentioned earlier, and this was another question I asked you totally outside, you know, your, your state of focus, but um, (laughs) you know, when I, you know, when I look at the military policy, U S military policy, starting with Reagan, when it comes to just spending, Mm -hmm. it it seems Reagan had a very clear goal, which was to effectively spend the Soviet union into bankruptcy. And, Mm -hmm. and they did a very good job at that. What I see again, looking at it from the outside, is that that strategy is almost working to bankrupt us now in a way, because we seem to have established a strategic advantage that's based on spending a lot of money. And that money is financed now primarily by debt. That's how the US government functions at this point in time. Do you feel that might be a strategic liability for us? I mean, obviously, the market for US debt is strong, and it's been consistently strong. But, you know, there are also instances in history where, uh, you know, where, where countries have been in the same boat and have found themselves on the wrong end of that equation. And, you know, the British Empire is one I can think of right off the bat. Um, do you have any comments there? Or? Yeah. So the old joke is that Chuck Norris doesn't need a strategy, <laughs> right? Because. Yeah. Because he, he can kill anybody who comes at him. So he doesn't have to prioritize. He doesn't have to make choices. He can just do everything. Yeah. And I think that the U.S. has been functioning largely on that principle for quite some time. Not that, not that no one thinks about strategy. We have a government full of people who are always thinking about strategy and writing up documents about it. 
But for a long time, what we've ended up with is what you might call log rolling, right? Mm-hmm. One person says, well, we should really focus on this. And somebody else says, well, we should really focus on this other thing. And instead of making choices and prioritizing, we've just said, well, we'll just do all of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there, is, there is a way of looking at the world that says you need to do all of it. There are a couple of different ways of looking at the world that says you need to do all of them. And for a long time, when the U.S. was, you know, the, the economic behemoth um, with high growth rates, et cetera, et cetera, there really didn't seem to be much point in trying to prioritize or, or be selective. A lot of people are arguing now that, that we've entered a new normal where growth rates are just going to be quite low. We'll still be a huge economy. We'll still be a very powerful economy but that we're just not going to be able to generate the kind of growth that we did in the past and that that means we're not going to be able to keep taking on debt the way that we have. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I do think that that's a concern. I don't think it's a crisis in the sense that I, I doubt the market for U.S. debt is going to dry up anytime soon unless some completely unforeseen event happens. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I personally think that... Uh, we are close to the point at which the the debt burden becomes a larger structural burden that we won't be able to get out from underneath. And that, that I think, is a problem, again, going back to sort of my, uh, my point about the, the health of the larger society, the health of the larger political system. Uh, if you, a state, are at a point where you are taking on so much debt and having low growth rates that you can't pay for all of your things, but you've also got a long tradition of paying for all the things, someone is going to be very upset Mm -hmm. when you start tightening the belt and cutting things back. And that means instability, that means upheaval, um, that means vulnerability, that means risk. And so I absolutely think that that's something that we should be looking at, both from a perspective of societal health, and from a security perspective, because again, it creates vulnerability. Yeah, in in a lot of ways, as I as I listen to everything you're you're telling me uh, about what we need to be a, a resilient society, and and what we need to do to meet some of the threats coming up, there are two things that seem to that it seemed to come back to is number one, making sure that we as a as a nation are resilient. And so that again gets back to issues of infrastructure, issues of uh, cybersecurity, things of that nature. And number two, making sure that we as a voting citizenry are doing our part to maintain political discourse uh, in a way that's productive. And so that doesn't necessarily mean we agree all the time. Uh, right. It certainly shouldn't, but it does mean that at the very least there is some acknowledgement that our fellow citizens who we might disagree with are honest actors. Uh, yes. And I, you certainly don't need a PhD to know that that is not going on right now. Yeah. For, you know, obviously the the structural reform seems a lot easier than the societal reform. Jumping back to at least what the military can do and, and, and how they can reform themselves to be, to, to be more resilient. And again, to meet these challenges, it, it seems to me like in a lot of cases, maybe the strategy that, that we need might be cheaper 
than what we're used to today in the sense that maybe we don't need the large volumes of tanks and boats and jets and guns and whatnot. Um, and maybe we need to make investments in areas that aren't necessarily what we'd consider uh, dedicated towards, you know, blowing things up. Am I wrong there or, or no? I wouldn't say you're wrong. The one big advantage to investing in all the high-end stuff mm-hmm. is that that closes off that option for other people, right? Mm-hmm. If, we, if we have all the tanks and the aircraft and the aircraft carriers and all of that stuff, what that does is maintain the expense and destructiveness of large-scale conventional warfare, which deters other people from pursuing it, right? Mm-hmm. So if we didn't have those things, I would worry that other actors might be more inclined to engage in that stuff. Maybe not. I, I could mm-hmm. be wrong about that. So I wouldn't say that we shouldn't have those things. But I do think that, in theory, the strategy was supposed to be that we built this huge international system of rules and order that everyone recognized that you know maybe they didn't benefit from it on every possible measure, but that they overall benefited from it and therefore had an incentive to maintain it. And then we, while we bore the, the brunt of the cost of that, we also benefited the most from it. And I think the idea was that then eventually, once the system had become so self-sustaining that we could kind of cut back. Unfortunately, we've never been very consistent about following that strategy, nor, nor was it a sure thing that it would actually work. But currently, we are seeing a lot of breakdown in that international system. And the two main responses that you're seeing, I think, among Americans right now are either to maintain primacy, which is the ability to sort of smash anyone who tries to attack us, but not maintain the system necessarily, or sort of retrenchment, where you just pull back and say, well, I'm not going to bother with anybody unless they actually come and attack my shores, which is the much cheaper option, obviously. But I think that what many people who favor retrenchment, or some people might call it isolationism, what I don't think they understand, because this is what I think would happen. Again, I am not God. I don't know that this would happen. But my belief is that if you did that, if you did this sort of Fortress America type thing, you would end up severely undermining the basis of American prosperity and probably putting us into a situation where our standard of living would have to decline pretty substantially. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't think that that's what anyone wants. And I, I don't think that that's a good strategy to pursue. But what, what that leaves us with is sort of a, a choice between viewing the world as a, as a sort of competitive space full of opponents or, or just sort of giving up. Uh, and and I, I don't think we're in a good spot right now. Yeah. That's, that's my point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. When we started talking and, and obviously, you know, one of the things I've, I've, I haven't kept secret as I've been doing this is that, you know, my main motivation behind this podcast was the, the, the breakdown uh, mm-hmm. in, in our, in our dialogue as a, as a society. And as we've talked, what's become very apparent to me is that this, this dialogue isn't just an issue of me not being able to have a peaceful Thanksgiving dinner 
without two relatives who disagree with each other yelling at each other or, or <laughs> me having a less entertaining Facebook feed. It, it, it really comes down to an issue of, of the security, in this case, the security apparatus of the U.S. government experiencing stress due to the fact that people just have a great distrust for the government, have a great distrust for one of the two political parties. Um, there's, there's a growing distrust of international institutions and all the things that have kind of kept stability. Um, and it sounds to me like, you know, when we talk about the issue of national security, when we talk to the, about, the issue, about the issue of global, global stability, you don't always need a military to do that. It sounds like in a lot of cases, the civilians can play a part in that too. Uh, in terms of how they approach things. So, um, yeah. well, listen, I, I, I know you've got to go back to go back to sleep. Uh, and and <laughs> you've been you've been remarkably peppy uh, for for how you described it, for how you described yourself in your email. So I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I really, I, I just, I really appreciate you taking the time. Like I said, I, I, I almost wish I had better questions for you because there's just, th there's, there's so much, we could go so much deeper into this and, and I could keep you well into the evening. And, uh, and oh, we, we absolutely could go deeper, but you asked very good questions. These, right. these are the kinds of questions that I think people should be asking and thinking about, you know, and, yeah. and again, I, I really applaud what you're doing uh, because uh, you know, having a healthy political system rests partly on having institutions that people trust and are legitimate and do what they're supposed to do, but it also rests on having an informed and engaged public. Mm -hmm. um, you can't have self-governance if people don't know or care or understand how to govern themselves. Now, to get back to the proverb I quoted at the top of the episode, one of the things that stood out to me in this conversation was how some of our biggest problems or biggest threats from a military perspective are really internal. Because, for example, without a functioning government, the military is effectively a rudderless ship that happens to be loaded with lots and lots of explosives. And, you know, we can partly blame this on the failure of the current administration to adequately staff the civilian side of our military. But, you know, a lot of the blame also falls on us because until we start making it a priority as a voting citizenry to inform ourselves for purposes greater than winning a debate on Facebook, Government's never going to have the accountability it needs to function at the most basic level, and that includes national defense. Now, honestly, I could have spent the whole month interviewing Dr. Khan, and I'm probably going to have to have her back again to dive into the subject further. So, Dr. Khan, if you're listening, consider this your warning. Uh, next week, I'll be talking with Heidi Peltier, director for the Cost of War Project at Boston University about the opportunity costs of investing in the military versus other sectors of the economy. It's a really interesting take. Hope you'll join me. Um, before we go, of course, I want to give special thanks to my brothers in metal from Norway, Kvelertak, for providing us with the theme music. And, of course, my producer, Jason Putney, who every week turns my ugly ducklings into swans. Until the next, this is Dan Sally, signing off. <laughs>